This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Six British soldiers killed in Afghanistan. Their warrior armoured vehicle struck an IED while on patrol. The Defence Secretary tells us his concerns. The fact that uh, uh, this uh, warrior has succumbed to this attack with such devastating consequences um, is very worrying. And the former Foreign Secretary David Miliband gives us his perspective. An investigation is continuing into the deaths of six British soldiers killed when their warrior armoured vehicle was hit by an explosion in Afghanistan. They were struck by an apparent improvised explosive device while on patrol in Helmand province on Tuesday evening. James Hurst is our reporter in Camp Bastion. James, the names of the soldiers have been released today. What can you tell us? Well, yes, Kate, we already knew that five of those soldiers were members of 3rd Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment, one of them a member of 1st Battalion, the Duke of Lancaster's Regiment, but he was on secondment to three Yorks. He was named as Sergeant Nigel Coop. He was 33. And the men he died alongside were Corporal Jake Hartley, Private Anthony Frampton, Private Daniel Wade, all of them 20 years old, Private Christopher Kershaw, who was 19, and Private Daniel Wilford, who was 21. Officially, these men are still listed as missing presumed dead. That is purely because formal identification still needs to be completed, and we are told that could yet take some time. And because of that, we've not actually been told much more detail about these men. The formal eulogies that we normally get have not yet been released. They will do so in time. There has, though, been uh, quite a moving tribute to each of these men from their commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Zach Stenning, uh, who finished by saying, six of our brothers have fallen. It has been a sad day, but as their brothers in arms, we remain committed in our duty to continue with our mission. They would want nothing less. And James, what's the latest on the investigation? Are there any more details on what happened? We, we have had a few more details uh, about the scale of the incident, some of the detail of what happened. It seems that after the initial explosion, ammunition that was on board that warrior armoured vehicle uh, may also have exploded and caused it to catch fire, something that is far from unprecedented. That fire then hampered rescue efforts. Now, clearly, that will be just one of the factors looked at in any investigation to see if anything can be done to mitigate the possibility of something like that happening in the future. I'm told, actually, there are several investigations into this, not just one. I've not been given any detail about how each of them is focused, and I don't think we should read too much into it. But the Defence Secretary and the Chief of the Defence Staff have made clear that if there are any lessons to learn, they will be learned. And I think that means there are some significant questions that are going to have to be answered. All right, James Hurst in Camp Bastion, thank you. Well, last night I spoke to the Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond. I asked him if he had a message for the families of the soldiers who died and two British troops out in Helmand Province. Well, firstly, this is a tragic incident. And of course, I extend my heartfelt condolences to the families of the people involved uh, in it. it. It reminds us once again of the huge risks and potentially sacrifices uh, that are made by our brave servicemen and women every day of the week. And it brings home to us just uh, what a debt of gratitude we owe to them for their dedication and professionalism. It does look like this was a very large Taliban IED. Does this signify a change in tactics? And if so, should we be changing our tactics? 
Well, I think it's too early to uh, make that call. Uh, there will, of course, be a full analysis of the incident and the device that apparently caused it. Uh, I think uh, commanders in theatre would caution that there is a constant evolution uh, of tactics and counter-tactics, uh, and we must look at um, how this device worked, what exactly has happened here, uh, and of course if we need to make changes uh, to improve force protection or to more effectively uh, counter um, the Taliban, we will do so. You talk about changes potential in force protection. This vehicle, the Warrior, is known to be a very robust vehicle, and yet there had mm. been some concerns over its safety, and two upgrades were announced last year. How could this have happened to this vehicle? Well, that's a very good question, because the, um, the, the, the set of upgrades that was announced that was designed for the um, in-theatre deployment of uh, Warrior to Afghanistan has been completed, and those, those vehicles have the uh, superior protection equipment on them. Uh, and this is the, uh, I think I'm right in saying, the most heavily armoured vehicle available to commanders in Afghanistan. So the fact that uh, uh, this uh, warrior has succumbed to this attack with such devastating consequences um, is very worrying. And obviously we need to understand exactly what has happened and how we're going to uh, respond to it. Afghan forces are responsible for the security of this area. How concerned are you that this was able to happen? Um, I don't think that is uh, actually correct. Uh, my understanding is that the ops box within which this incident occurred um, is actually still uh, a, an area of British uh, lead responsibility. Um, but, of course, the Afghan National Security Forces are progressively taking over responsibility uh, for security across um, other parts of Afghanistan. Uh, and I think our assessment, the, the assessment of the UK Armed Forces, is that the ANSF is becoming a formidable uh, force in its own right. And as it continues to increase in strength, get more equipment and be better trained, it will become uh, still more formidable. We will work alongside the Afghans, but of course, uh, ultimately, the intention is that we will withdraw from a combat role, uh, leaving the Afghans responsible for the security of their country. That has to be the right outcome, both for us and for them. Indeed, a date for the withdrawal of combat troops is set and yet there is this continuous death toll that rises how would you respond to people who might think that this is a sacrifice too high a price to pay well i would say to them that we've embarked upon a mission for a very clear purpose we're not there uh, to impose a form of western government on afghanistan we're not there to tell the afghans how to live their lives we are there for a single uh, primary purpose which is to ensure the protection of Britain and the UK population against international terrorism operating from safe havens in Afghanistan. We're coming to the end of our combat mission, but it is absolutely incumbent upon us, especially after such sacrifice has been made, to ensure that we leave Afghanistan uh, in such a state that it will never again become a safe haven for international terrorism. I believe we're making very good progress towards that goal by building up the Afghan National Security Forces and at the same time using the remaining period of our presence there to strengthen further uh, the uh, hold that the Afghan government has on the territory 
uh, of Afghanistan, making sure that the international terrorists, Al-Qaeda in particular, are increasingly squeezed out. That was the Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond, speaking to me earlier. Well, someone who's no stranger to dealing with events in Afghanistan is the former Foreign Secretary, David Miliband. He joins us now, along with BFBS Defence Analyst, Christopher Lee. Welcome to both of you. Mr Miliband, if I could start with you, what was your initial reaction to yesterday's news from Afghanistan? Well, good afternoon. My reaction was that this is the news that we have all been fearing since the last big loss of life in a similar incident in 2006. Uh, this is one of the biggest losses of life in a single incident during the Afghan campaign and one immediately thinks of the young people that I met on trips to Afghanistan and of their families because it's the dread uh, news that uh, terrifies all of us. I think that the uh, important reminder we get is of the extraordinary bravery but also intelligence and skill of the young people that we asked to do work in Afghanistan. And I think it's also important to say that they are making a difference. That's why they're there. I have my own views about what more could be done, what could be done differently on the political and diplomatic track. But when it comes to the efforts of our young people, they're absolutely without parallel and uh, beyond anything that I've seen in my professional lifetime. Indeed, the deaths pushed the number of fatalities in Afghanistan over the 400 mark. It's always been important for the government to explain to the wider public the reason why troops are there. You say they're making a difference. Do you think this has ever been done effectively by either the current or your government? I think that both Labour and Conservative governments have been part of an international coalition trying to do something that is wholly new. We've never faced the kind of challenge that Al-Qaeda pr presented from its Afghan base in 2001. Uh, there's never been an attack like that of 9-11. Uh, fortunately, there hasn't been an attack like that since. And Al-Qaeda have been driven out of Afghanistan and they're now being pounded on the Afghan side, of, on the Pakistan side of the border. What I always say, though, is that defence and diplomacy and development go together to create the conditions in which we can leave Afghanistan stable and able to govern its own affairs. That's what I call a political settlement in which both the neighbours of Afghanistan and the tribes of Afghanistan uh, hold the ring and uh, ensure that the country is no longer a base to attack more widely, the international terrorism that the Defence Secretary uh, referred to. I think it's important to emphasize that every single soldier and military officer that I met when I was in Afghanistan, I visited six times as Foreign Secretary, every single one of them said, look, our role there is absolutely vital, but we can't do it on our own. There isn't a military solution. We're not going to kill our way out of this problem. And they're right to say that, and that's why there's a responsibility on diplomats and politicians as well. What do you make of Britain's wider political perspective beyond the drawdown of combat troops? Actually, the thing that I worry about is that Afghanistan should never become the forgotten war. I write about it, I talk about it, but I think that we have to rem always remember that there are 10,000 young British men and women uh, working and serving their country there. So the first thing I'd say is that this needs to be a subject of debate, not just on the day or the day after tragedy. It needs to be an ongoing uh, engagement with the issues that are raised there. Secondly, Britain is part of an international coalition, and I'm very concerned that all parts of the coalition act together. I don't like the sense 
that different governments are announcing different dates for different uh, withdrawal. I think we've got, we went in together and we've got to come out together. So, and one of the important responsibilities for the Prime Minister when he goes to Washington next week is to make sure that we are indeed in lockstep with the American administration and the rest of the NATO alliance. Of which we'll talk later in the programme. On that note though, what do you think of our exit strategy for Afghanistan? Is it right to set that deadline for combat well, I think, troops? I think that the NATO uh, agreement of which Britain is a part has been clearer about the end date than it has been about the key political and diplomatic components that are going to make uh, safe withdrawal possible. And I think that the issue is not whether or not the date is right, it's what goes alongside it to make sure that it is feasible and successful. And that is going to require all the tribes of Afghanistan to be inside the political system, including uh, the, those elements of the Taliban that are willing to live under the Afghan constitution. But secondly, it's going to require the neighbors of Afghanistan, some of whom are very tricky customers indeed, to be part of a commitment to stability in the area. That's why we have ongoing interests there, although we won't have ongoing combat operations there. Christopher Lee, um, we are constantly told that the reason we are we started in Afghanistan was to, uh, with a clear purpose, to actually protect Britain against terrorist attacks, to stop Afghanistan being a haven for Al-Qaeda. Does the Al-Qaeda threat come from Afghanistan? Does it still exist there? The, the, the Al-Qaeda threat doesn't come from Afghanistan. The Al-Qaeda threat comes from partly through uh, Pakistan, um, through the Yemen, which is, uh, which is swarming with uh, um, Al-Qaeda at the moment. The big problem, and David Milliman's touched on this, you've got to sort out the neighbours, the tribes he mentioned as well. You've got to know what India is going to do after we go. You've got to know what Pakistan's going to do after we go. Even Iran and the Central Asian republics. I have seen no idea of strategy is that when you uh, that tells me that when you get to 2014 15 that we're pulling out we all say leaving it in the capable hands of the afghan army and don't forget the police i have seen no evidence at all suggest that there is any any guarantee that the afghan army is capable of doing the sort of job that we say they're capable of doing i think the whole thing is is rather suspect indeed and so where is the strategy that says in 2014-15, what happens if there isn't a clean handover? How do we gauge whether there is a handover to be made? And if we thought at the time that there wasn't, do we just skedaddle? Uh, just skedaddle as we, the way we did from Iraq? David Miliband, is there a clear strategy for what we do after withdrawal? Has it been thought through properly by the British government? I think that it is understood, but it is not yet being prosecuted. Uh, the strategy I would summarize as follows, all the tribes in, the neighbors on side, and Al-Qaeda kept out. That's the political strategy. Now that requires an internal political settlement involving the Afghan government, but also the neighbors, including the countries that Mr. Lee mentioned, that Christopher Lee mentioned, are part of what I call a council for regional stability. Let me give you one specific that I think is very important that hasn't yet been done uh, by the international community. I would like to see an international mediator, a UN Security Council mediator, sent in for all sides to talk to. People talk often about the need to talk to the Taliban. It's not just them. There are a whole range of factions and groups in Afghanistan and in the region. And I think that until we have that sort of focus for the political and diplomatic effort, we're going to be lacking in the kind of drive and purpose that is absolutely essential part, partner 
of the remarkable work that our forces are doing. I think it's very important, I'm sure, that Mr. Lee would uh, concur with this, uh, that nothing that he says about the need to upgrade the political strategy undermines at all the remarkable work that's being done by the um, armed forces and the difference that they are making. But the question is whether or not it's a short-term difference or a long-term difference. And that's the key to the sustainability of this operation. All right, David Miliband, Christopher Lee, stay with us. Well, as we just heard from Philip Hammond in the programme, the Warrior is the most heavily armoured vehicle being used in Afghanistan. So how did this happen? Christopher Foss is from the Jane's Fighting Vehicles publication. Welcome to the programme. Uh, Christopher, obviously an investigation is underway into the attack, but have you any idea about why the Warrior didn't withstand the blast? Well, as you said, the Warrior is the best protected track vehicles we're currently deploying on operations and from what I've, I've heard I understand it wasn't an anti-tank mine, it was a very large IED which went off um, the vehicle went over and then caught fire um, and the vehicle and, and its occupants was unfortunately destroyed but the, the Warrior is very well protected um, last year um, the upgraded version which is called the Warrior Theatre Stent Hentry Standard Herrick was deployed and that's got over 30 improvements on top of the, uh, the, the earlier 70 so they have done a, a great deal of effort in to improve the survivability of that vehicle and obviously they will when they recover the vehicle they will analyse it, they will study it and see if it can be improved any further but I think the point is that no armoured vehicle ever developed or ever will be developed will give you 100% survivability against all the threats on the battlefield, be they small arms fire, anti-tank mines, direct fire, RPGs or even IEDs, which sometimes can be huge and would destroy any vehicle you deploy. You mentioned the fire on board the Warrior. It's reported to have been caused by ammunition on board. Could that have been prevented? Um, Warrior is armed with a 30mm Raden cannon. The ammunition is stowed in the turret. You then have the, the, the troop small arms ammunition as well. You might have some anti-tank weapons. So obviously it looks like there was a fire and the ammunition caught fire and that's what ultimately destroyed the vehicle. So we'll look at that and say, well, do we put a fire suppression system in the crew compartment? Can we restow the vehicle very carefully? Because a lot of effort is been put in in restowing the vehicle so when you go over an IED or or a mine things don't fly around inside and actually kill the occupants rather than the explosion so obviously they will look at that vehicle see what they can be learned and then try and fast track those improvements into the field but they do take time the warrior tez has got 30 improvements including a better armor they put some new bally armor on it they've did lots of other things inside but there are clearly limits on how much armor you can put on a vehicle otherwise you lose mobility and you're restricted to where you can deploy it Indeed. And you said earlier that not every vehicle can be protected against everything, but if the Warrior had been fitted with a V-shaped hull, would that have made any difference, do you think? Um, V-shaped hulls were first deployed in, in, the Af in the Southern African campaigns, and a lot of the vehicles out there have a V-shaped hull. Um, you cannot fit that to a vehicle like Warrior, unfortunately. If you can build a new vehicle with a V-shaped hull, and that certainly... Okay, well, if they had been in a vehicle that had a V-shaped hull, would it have made a difference? It could have made it. I would where it could, because if you've got a V-shaped hull, the blast tends to be deflected away from the crew compartment. But I said could be, but if it was a very, very big ID, I think um, you could even lose a V-shaped hull vehicle. I've been reading that this is perhaps the third warrior to be written off by the Taliban in Afghanistan. Do you think the Taliban see it as the weaker vehicle, as a target preferred against, say, the Mastiff? 
I, th I think the Taliban are very smart operators. They they learn. I mean, some IEDs are fit, operated by remote control. Others operated by other types of fusing systems. So carefully, they will sometimes pick the more vulnerable vehicle. They might pick the first one in the convoy. They might pick the last one in the convoy. So it is quite possible that um, it all depends if it was activated by remote control, in which case they will pick it very carefully because we understand the vehicle, in fact, wasn't traveling on the road. It was traveling off-road. Um, so that would be taken into account. But certainly I think probably a V-shaped hole is a better design, but you cannot fit it on all types of vehicle. And Warrior is an infantry fighting vehicle, and, and the Mastiffs are, are a, for a, perhaps a different role. All right, Christopher Foss, editor of Jane's Armour and Artillery, thank you very much for your time. Sit rep with Still to come, has any progress been made on the situation in Iran? And we look ahead to next week's Anglo-American Summit in Washington. BFBS Sit In Syria, the highest level political figure to abandon Bashar al-Assad's government has announced his defection on YouTube. In contrast to what happened in Libya, the deputy oil minister Abu Hussar Madin is one of only a few to make such a step. Drawing perhaps from the Libya experience, senior, U senior U.S. politician John McCain has this week said U.S.-led airstrikes are the only way to stop the slaughter. But the official line from the U.S. Defense Secretary and from Britain is that diplomacy is still the preferred solution to the crisis. David Miliband, former U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan, is in Damascus this weekend. Is diplomacy still the right option? I think that declaring war on Syria, which is what bombing its troops would mean, uh, would be a very dangerous move. I think that we have to make diplomacy work, and the Kofi Annan mission is a very significant one. Despite the divisions in the UN Security Council, he was appointed with unanimous support, i.e. the Russians and the Chinese were on board, and I think he does have the credibility to try and fashion some kind of political process that has the hope of holding the country together and above all stopping the killing in the short term. I think a couple of months ago people thought the choice was either Assad goes, President Assad goes, or he stays. Now the choice is does he, does he stay and carry on killing or does he stay and stop killing? And we've got to do, make sure that the latter happens, reuniting the British and American position, the French position, with that of the Russians and the Chinese is the absolute key to this. So what exactly should Britain be doing in all of this? I think we, sh we, we are powerful with the Russians in, a, in alliance with others, notably the, the obvious allies, but I think we should be working very hard on the Chinese and we have to work with the Arabs as well. Remember, the Russians are uh, looking for allies around the world and they are looking to be treated seriously as a great power. They have a real concern that the alternative to Assad could end up being something that's controlled by the Saudis and the Qataris. And so there is a concern on their part that there is a commitment to national unity in Syria and to a broad-based transitional government after Assad goes. I don't think they're particularly devoted to Assad himself, but they do want to make sure that it's not simply another faction, especially a Sunni um, possibly a Wahhabi-linked faction uh, that takes over. You say Assad should stay but stop the killing. Christopher Lee, this week the British ambassador to Syria, Simon Collis, has predicted the fall of the Assad regime. Is he right? Um, I think that's the ambition. Um, but if you, if you think of two important points, one is that we've, we've always seemed to have a very Western perception of what is going on. Um, nobody's really explained to me to what support... Assad actually has within his own country. If you look at it's very difficult to know, isn't but it? But if really? you look at what's happening in the biggest city in in Syria, which is Aleppo, 
there isn't that opposition that we talk about. When you look at the opposition, there is no direct leadership. It is fragmented. It is in in dispersed in in a uh, in in a, in a dis, uh, diaspora in, in Paris, in New York, in London. That's the difficult side of it. Also, if it falls, who else has to fall with him? Uh, his brother, Maha uh, Assad, Asef Shalkwat, uh, Ramel Mahlouf, uh, Abdel Fattah, Ali. I could go on for ages. There's a big, big organizational saying to, saying to Assad, you are not going, we are not going, because if, if you want to go, uh, then we all have to go. Right. So there has all this week been tough talking over Iran. Has it had any effect? They've now agreed to inspections of their nuclear facilities by the International Atomic Energy Agency in a week that's seen Israel defend its right to strike them militarily if necessary. But the inspections will take place against the backdrop of speculation that Iran might have already tidied up any evidence of work towards a nuclear bomb. Um, David Miliband on Iran, how much of a threat is it at the moment? Well, if you mean, is it a, a threat of becoming a nuclear weapon state, I don't think that it is that at the moment. So Iran doesn't have a nuclear weapon, and the purpose of the effort that's being made right around the world is to stop them becoming a nuclear weapons uh, state. Uh, there are obviously three parts to developing a nuclear weapon. There's the enrichment, which is important, there's the weaponization, and there's the delivery system. They're making some progress on the enrichment. It's unclear where they are on the other two elements. But I don't think anyone believes that they've got a weapon now, and I don't think anyone would seriously say they're going to get one. Even if they had all the elements, it would take them nine months to 12 months to put one together. So I think we've got to get this in perspective. Personally, I strongly agree with President Obama that loose talk of war is very misguided, and I think it would be quite wrong uh, for a preemptive attack to be launched on the um, Iranians. And they, they are a source of destabilization in the Middle East. They are uh, playing double games on the nuclear front. But all of our experience should say that it's not going to be rhetoric that gets the Iranians to shift their position. It's going to be a cold, calculated look at their own interests, and that's what we should be working on. That's the purpose of the pressure track, the sanctions. But it's also points to the importance of a diplomatic track, a political track that opens up engagement with the uh, Iranians and allows them to find a solution that isn't humiliating because the Shia of uh, Iran will never vote or move for a humiliating uh, climb down. They'll only move for something if they can present it to themselves and to their own people uh, as at least being a score draw. Christopher, uh, we know the IAEA inspectors are allowed to go and inspect those nuclear installations. There is speculation that there is a sort of tidying up going on ahead of uh, uh, inspection of one particular installation. How long can diplomacy be an option? How do you know it's actually working? Um, you, know if it, you know it's working from your own uh, intelligence reports on how many, for example, in some of the places, how many uh, uh, cascades they've uh, advanced what sort of processing uh, are they doing I think the important bit here is that is something which we just touched upon and that is the Prime Minister of Israel uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, is almost winding up uh, uh, President Obama uh, saying okay in election year uh, you've got to take a stance we know that but the truth is that the uh, that the uh, ir Iranians are developing something that goes straight to the heart of straight to the heart of, of Israeli strategy, uh, and that is that there will not be another Masada. 
that we will defend ourselves. We have certain uh, uh, elements that we can do it with. They've got 24 F-15s, 100 F-16s, etc. They've started to deploy the GBU-28s uh, and even the 27s. Uh, they've got air-to-air refueling. They have the capability... And people are talking, including the American Defense Secretary, they are talking about the windows uh, for, for such an attack. That is an impossible uh, thing to ignore, and we shouldn't ignore it. But the, America, the Israelis can't do it without American support once it's been done, and that is the difficulty of President uh, Obama. Uh, and briefly, just before we go today, let's talk a little bit more about American support, because David Cameron is going to Washington for talks with President Obama next week. Um, David Miliband, uh, are they, in, in general, in agreement on policies in terms of foreign policies? I think that there are some important shared commitments between the US and the UK, whatever the uh, government of the two countries, two democracies, uh, two uh, governments that are committed and concerned about some uh, common security threats around the world. Um, I think President Obama might be a bit more pro-European than David Cameron, but they, I don't think that will really uh, divide them. Uh, American presidents since John F. Kennedy have wanted a more united Europe, and I'm not sure our Prime Minister is quite in that place at the moment. But I think on the issues of Afghanistan, on Iran, uh, I think they'll, they'll be seeking to emphasise the common ground and uh, that won't be too difficult. And in your experience, how productive are these kind of summits? I think they're essential. There's always a bit of flummery associated with them, but I think that personal relationships matter at times of crisis and the investment that you put in when there isn't a crisis uh, comes to the fore when there is one. Now, I think that Afghanistan has been on the front pages for all the wrong reasons over the last 24 hours. It's vital that it stays on the front pages because we have 10,000 servicemen that need to be uh, helped there. And so as well as talking about the danger of future wars, let's make sure we deal with the legacy wars as well. Christopher, do you think there'll be any headlines coming out of next week's meeting? Oh, yes. I mean, when, when you think, they're going to look forward to, to, to the May-Chicago summit of NATO uh, members, which will decide to some extent or agree the whole future of Afghanistan involvement. But the immediate problems are mutual problems. Iran, Syria, uh, the economy, don't forget. And there'll be a little aside, perhaps, from somebody from, uh, from number 10, who will say to somebody in the White House, listen, can you give us a better steer? on what you're likely to say in the Security Council on the Falklands. And do you think we'll be getting any, uh, any joy on that one? The Americans cannot afford to be wholeheartedly behind the British about the Falklands because they have their own interests within Central and Latin America to contend with as well. More of which, I'm sure, next week. Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to David Miliband and Christopher Lee. Let us know your thoughts on today's programme. You can follow us on Twitter. Tweet us at BFBS Sitrep or send us an email. The address is sitrep at bfbs.com. We're back at the same time next week. From me, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>